Okay, turn to Ecclesiastes, rather, Ecclesiastes chapter number 1, and uh, we're going to begin a study this evening that will go through uh, for a little bit this year on Ecclesiastes. I think it's a great follow-up study to the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, we saw Solomon's wisdom that he was imparted to by God when he was living in the light and in the brightness of God's counsel at the beginning of his reign as king over Israel, which lasted for 40 years. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we see Solomon's wisdom from his dark side of life uh, after he had reigned for 38 years. Um, and uh, this is a very uh, dark book. It's uh, a depressing book, to be honest with you, as you study it. But uh, Solomon was... Uh, Certainly a man that had two very opposite sides to his character. Proverbs was a wonderful book that God had given him of wise sayings when the Lord offered him one time the opportunity to ask of me what you will. And Solomon, very young, said, give me an understanding heart. And God did. And from that was birthed the book of Proverbs. Uh, wise sayings that he wrote. And uh, we studied Proverbs last year in, in uh, uh, 2004, and it's such a wonderful book. I love Proverbs. Uh, well, this is kind of the sequel to it, written about 38 years later by Solomon. Now, his word never appears in the book, but it does say this in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And when you get down to Verse 12, a little more specific, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So you know it's Solomon. He's the only one that could fit that description because Israel, after his reign, became a divided kingdom and the Jerusalem was never considered as part of Israel again but part of Judah. And uh, so only Solomon can fit the description of verses 1 and uh, 12. So Solomon is the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, as you probably see in your Bible, the word Ecclesiastes means the preacher. Uh, literally means one who addresses an assembly. And it doesn't have to be a pastor or a prophet. Kings oftentimes address assemblies in uh, their reigns. And uh, in fact, they were much more instrumental in setting the tone of the morals uh, of the country that they headed than the prophets were. Uh, if you'll read through the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll notice that all the kings are mentioned, and then after their name, there's usually a, a statement that says something like this: "Who did evil in the sight of the Lord?" or "Who did right in the sight of the Lord?" or "Who did right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart?" And it always told us about the morals of the kings. And then it also tells us about the ministries of the prophets as they were so often busy trying to offset the morals or the immorality of the kings, and they never succeeded. Uh, this shows us the importance of government. And uh, the Bible says when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn 
the government is more of a setter of the tone of the morals of a country than the preachers are, or than the prophets are. And uh, all the prophets of the Old Testament very rarely could ever combat the evil influence of the particular king of that day. Or if you had a good king like Josiah, you had a, a great spiritual awakening and revival under him. Uh, uh, as uh, He was a contemporary there with Jeremiah, and uh, they led the greatest Passover, I think, that is, uh, Judah ever experienced since its inception under Moses' law. So government is important, and I think... Uh, we're in the fix we're in today in America because uh, I think Christians quit being involved in it and uh, uh, thought that uh, preaching was going to uh, be the only thing that would save our country. And uh, God needs everything. Uh, there's three institutions, the government, the church, and the family. And when all three are right in the eyes of the Lord, then you're going to have something good happen in your country. So Solomon... Here writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He is the preacher, which just simply means one who addresses uh, an assembly. He was the preacher, verse 12, as well as the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And a king or a ruler is to some extent a, a preacher, as, as I mentioned. 21 times, for instance, it says of Jeroboam, this phrase in the Old Testament, Quote, Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin. Now, some people say, I didn't think anybody could make somebody sin. Well, it says 21 times of Jeroboam. Quote, Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin. And there's many others in the Bible like him, where it says they made Israel to sin, they made Judah to sin, and so on and so forth. Um, we are an influence on others. And our influence is usually doing one of two things, either uh, endorsing sin and uh, encouraging people in sin or endorsing righteousness and encouraging people in righteousness. Solomon began to reign in 1015 B.C. He... Uh, wrote this book here in 977 B.C. Now, if you subtract the two numbers, you come up with 38 years. And remember, Solomon reigned for 40 years, so he wrote this book probably in the last year or two of his reign. When did Solomon backslide so badly? Well, we have this insight in 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, but King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. He had no preference. He just had a tremendous weakness. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And so ladies should take a, a great lesson from this story of their influence over men. And remember, in the last chapter of Proverbs, we 
read where the Bible says, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's the virtuous woman. And so a woman has to understand, whether you do understand or not, accept it by faith, you have great influence over men. It's very easy for a lady to say to a man, oh, honey, let's not go to church tonight. And then to have him agree with her. Um, And uh, so this affected Solomon, although he was responsible for what he did. It says that he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. But don't be a lady that turns a man's heart away from God. Be a lady who turns a man's heart to God with as much influence as you can. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the, heart, with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Now the date on this is 992 B.C. 992 B.C. So if you subtract that from 1015 B.C., and these are just approximate dates. There are question marks after these. But what this means is about 23 years into the reign of Solomon, he reigned 40 years, he started out great, about 23 years into his reign, he began to forget and forsake all that precious wisdom God gave us that was recorded in Proverbs, and his heart began to turn towards women, and after about 23 years of reigning, they caused him to sin, and to depart from the Lord, and to get involved into idolatry. And then 38 years into his uh, reign, he um, seemed to come to his senses, and it's that time that he writes Ecclesiastes. So there's about a 15-year period where it appears as though Solomon is away from God. And the book of Ecclesiastes is the record of all the things he tries in a humanistic, secularistic uh, mode of living to try to find satisfaction that he has lost because he left God behind. And uh, it's, a, it's a dark book, uh, and yet we have the bright side of wisdom in Proverbs, the dark side of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, and there's always been two ways to learn wisdom, two easy ways to learn wisdom. Uh, one easy way to learn wisdom is to listen to wise people and do what they say. Another easy way to listen to, uh, to learn wisdom is to see all the mistakes evil people make and avoid them. And so somehow God in his sovereignty allowed or tolerated Solomon to do this and brought him back into his senses a couple years before he died to record his backslidings, his wanderings, and maybe, and recorded this book of Ecclesiastes, and, and maybe God did that because God knew that billions and billions of people would live after him, who maybe would read the book of Ecclesiastes and say, you know, this kind of life isn't worth it. Uh, 
trying to pursue everything. And, and basically in Ecclesiastes, we have the story of a man who got every single thing his heart desired. And he found it to be all empty. All empty. And how many people have you seen who will never ever come close to achieving or attaining what Solomon was given, and yet they still think there's going to be some kind of satisfaction out there by living such a life as he did. Not worth it. It says in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. I like the fact that in the midst of this verse, it still says he was beloved of his God. What a God of love we serve. That no matter how far we get away on his journey, he's like that father who looked for the prodigal son to return and still received him back as his son, even though he had spent his substance on harlots and partying and so on and so forth. Some of you that are parents perhaps can relate a little bit to the love of God when you know that no matter what kind of behavior your children do get involved in, uh, you still love them. Uh, you never start to hate them. Even though they rip your heart out, you still love them. I, I don't know um, what I would do, but I, I don't think there's anything that Rachel, Stephen, or Rebecca, my three children, could do that would ever cause me to stop loving them. Uh, might greatly disappoint me, might rip my heart out and beat it up and cause me to have a broken heart and so on and so forth, but I, I really don't think that there's anything that they could ever do that would cause me to hate them. This is one of the big struggles people have inside of them. Some of you here tonight have had that struggle where you feel you have disappointed God so much that he no longer loves you or he hates you or he's mad at you or he's angry at you or so on so forth. Yet it says right in the midst of all this mess about Solomon here in, in Nehemiah, it says there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. Uh, even even despite the mess he was in, he was beloved of his God. And you and I are beloved of our God. Uh, it's something you need to settle in your hearts. Uh, the New Testament teaches us in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We can be separated from fellowship with God, but we can never be separated from his love. From his love. So please do yourself a favor tonight and accept by faith the fact that God loves you as his child. I know God's a better father than I am, 
And if I can't possibly think of anything my kids would, could do that would make me hate them, I know, I know God's better than I am. God loves you tonight no matter what you've ever done. And uh, as his child, as his child, uh, no matter what you've ever done, God still loves you. And uh, God dealt with Solomon. The next generation paid a horrible price for his actions and the consequences of his actions. Yes, yeah, there's consequences and there's chastisement. But we need to just get to the point where we rest in his love by faith and get it solved, get it settled once and for all. I am loved of God. Now here in Ecclesiastes, he begins to right out of the blocks, tell us the things that he pursued during those 15 years or more or less, whatever they were, of his carnal life, his backslidden life away from God. In verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, we see his labor, his labor, uh, and, and all the work that he did and all the work that goes on in the world. And then in verses 12 through 18, his pursuit of worldly wisdom But he says in verse 2, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This word vanity appears 33 times in these 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, and the word means emptiness. The, word, the phrase vanity of vanities appears three times, twice in this verse. Emptiness of emptinesses. Emptiness of emptinesses. That's how he starts the book. He says, I want you to know what this book's about. This book's about all the things I pursued that I thought were going to bring me happiness, but it brought me emptiness. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then the rest of the book, he begins to list what he means by all. He begins to talk about labor. Verse 3 says, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Now, what he's talking about here now, we, we know from the rest of the Bible, and even parts of this book we'll see later, that, that, that labor is good. Labor is godly. Labor is God's will for our life. But what he's referring to here and, and throughout the book is, verse 3, a, a, a person who just labors for themselves. Person who just labors for himself. What profit hath the man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? The man who just labors, just works for himself. I've uh, tried to share this with people before, but I think a good way to illustrate this is, is, is by thinking about what a profound life a human being has to live just to get one inch of space in an encyclopedia. It's only the most profound of lives that are lived that, that even get one inch of space in an encyclopedia. And please tell me tonight, what are going to what's going to happen to all the encyclopedias of the world? Someday they're going to melt in a fervent heat. That's what the Scripture says. We're not going to have them in heaven. So somebody lives an unbelievably profound life as a man or a woman, gets an inch in the encyclopedia, and someday the encyclopedia is going to be burned up. And what's the new heavens and the new earth going to be like? Well, let me give you a few scriptures. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, 
Isaiah 65, 17, And the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. In other words, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're not going to say, oh, wow, you're Wayne Gretzky if he ever got saved. You, you, you set all those hockey records. No, the only thing that's going to matter is the, did the guy get saved, and then after he got saved, what did he do for Jesus Christ? That's the absolute only thing that's going to matter. You know, we're not going to say, oh, wow, you're, uh, you're Thomas Edison. You know, if he got saved, oh, you made the light bulb. Man, there was... I read about you in the encyclopedia. No, the Bible says there's going to be no remembrance. The former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. Someday, someday God's just going to brainwash our minds in eternity future, after the new heavens, after the new earth, after Christ's kingdom, after the tribulation. Isaiah 66, 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, um, so shall your seed and your name remain. So that talks about what's going to remain of our lives is our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you study the Lamb's Book of Life, the only other thing mentioned in the Lamb's Book of Life is the writings of God that he writes down under our name of what we have done for him in the right motive and in the right spirit. Peter said, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And so that's why Solomon by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, What profit hath a man in all his labor which he taketh under the sun? What profit is there? It's never going to be remembered. It's all going to be dissolved. That is, the man who works for himself. But thank God it says in Hebrews 6 and verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love, which ye have, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. See, there are things God's going to remember. Your labor of love, anything we did in love, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 tells us whatever you do, be sure you do it in love, whether it's preaching, giving money, giving your body to be burned at the stake as a martyr, uh, having faith to move mountains, be sure it's done in love. And anything you have showed in your work toward his name, Or to the saints, as you've ministered to them, God is going to remember that. So whereas this is vanity of vanities for a person to live for themselves and work for themselves, if you work for Jesus Christ, that will be remembered. Now he begins to show in verses 4 down uh, through uh, verse 11, not only man's work, but everything else that works is worthless, ultimately, uh, when it's just in regards to the things of this earth. Look at verse 4. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. 
I mean, you can hardly even find the gravestones anymore from the 1600s or the 1700s. You see some from the 1800s and the 1900s. You know, if you ever walk through cemeteries, and I've done this a few times, and you read names and you read numbers, you know, the years and so on and so forth, just, just think, you know, these were once people that lived and breathed and loved and hated and thought they were something. Some of them thought they were legends in their own minds. Some of them thought they were invincible. Some of them thought they, they were the most important thing on earth. But their generation came and the next one left and the next one came. And so is life, brethren. Life is brief. One generation passeth away, another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. That last part of verse 4 means, but things go on as usual. That is not a doctrinal statement about the planet. The Jehovah's Witnesses use it as a doctrinal statement about the planet, ignoring all the other verses that tell us what's going to happen to the earth. But in its context, what this just simply means is that things go on as usual. The Bible is a progressive revelation. You've got to understand that when it comes to truths. And in fact, the next word we have in the Bible on the earth is what I read earlier. Uh, when you get to Isaiah 65:17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Um, and then uh, as, as you go on, Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, Matthew 24, 35. But my word shall not. And then Peter about the heavens melting with a fervent heat and so on. So the Bible is a progressive revelation. Uh, in other words, you can't know all the truth God wants you to know just by knowing Genesis. Because there's stuff he's going to progressively reveal to us in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and so on. And regarding any doctrine, any principle, any practice, any subject that you're studying in the Bible, you've got to take what all of the scriptures say about that and compare them and come up with your conclusions as taught by the Holy Spirit. The earth isn't going to last forever. The cults are wrong. Peter was right. There's going to be a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. But what he's saying here in verse 4 is that this is just cyclical. One generation comes, another goes. And, and, and so please, don't, don't think you're important. Because you're not. And I'm not. Think God is important. Think his work is important. Esteem others better than yourself, the scripture says. So sad when people think they're invincible, think they're going to live forever, and you know what the Bible says? They're not. And they're soon going to be forgotten, just like all the other millions and millions and millions of people who have died before us. He goes, he talks about this cycle of the earth and how things just keep going on the same no matter who, what generation lives and what generation dies. Verse 5 says, The sun also ariseth and the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. In other words, when you die, the sun doesn't care. It just keeps going on like you didn't even exist. The winds don't care. Verse 6, The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about 
unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. And by the way, this is a tremendous scientific statement right here. Uh, the scientific statements of the Bible are true. I don't know how Solomon knew this, but but uh, you can take the map of the United States almost every single day, and you can watch this circuit right here go through the United States where the wind goeth towards the south, turneth about towards the north, and whirleth about continually. You know, usually whatever Chicago or Detroit gets hit with is what we're going to get hit with in about a day or two. Uh, once in a while we get a northeasterly or something like that, but for the most part, the wind just follows the same circuits over and over again. Great, great scientific statement here in verse number 6. Also a great scientific statement in verse 7 about evaporation. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. And... Uh, um, this is, this is the cycle of evaporation. Uh, waters just keep running off the mountains into the sea, but the sea's never full. Why? It keeps evaporating. Water is neither created nor destroyed. It's just cyclical. Same water that was around 6,000 years ago is still recycling today. Uh, the Dead Sea, I think it has about 32 different rivers running it, but it never overflows. It just keeps evaporating, even though it has no outlet. And uh, so what's it saying here? The sun just, you or I die today, the sun's going to keep going on, the wind's going to keep going on, the river's going to keep going on. Nothing's going to change because we left the scene. All things are full of labor. The sun labors, the wind labors, the earth, the rivers labor, man labors. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Everything works. Nothing stops working. And nothing is ever satisfied. And again, he's talking again about from a worldly aspect of things. Man's eye is never satisfied with seeing, his ears never filled with hearing. Man away from God never says, I'm satisfied. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 20 says, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Verse 11, is there anything whereof it may be said, see this is new, it hath already it hath been already of old time, which was before us. And so these generations, the way God created things, he set things in motion, they're just going to keep going on and on and on and on and on and on and on with or without insignificant people like us. It's kind of humbling when it talks about labor here and the emptiness of work without God. There is no remembrance of former things, verse 11. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come after those that shall come after. So in other words, in heaven we're not going to say, hey, remember Super Bowl 35? It's not going to come up. The things that we see, we think are so important we can't miss. 
you know, you can't miss March Madness and you can't miss the NBA Finals and you can't miss this show or that show or this season of Survivor or whatever. You can't miss it. Those things will never be remembered. They'll never even come up in conversation. That's why they're, they're called emptiness here, vanity of vanities. It's all emptiness. Man, what's, what's saying here in verses 1 through 11 is man spends his time on complete emptiness. This is backslid man, carnal man, the natural man. Not, hopefully not you and I, the spiritual man. But, but that's what it's saying here. Man spends his whole life on things that are never going to be remembered, never going to be brought up in heaven. So in verses 1 through 11, he talks about the emptiness of laboring for yourself. The emptiness of living for yourself. And then he turned to wisdom. Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel. In Jerusalem, verse 13, I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. And so, several other times in this book, he's going to bring this up, how he said, well, I, I couldn't find it in work, and so I turned to wisdom. Uh, maybe if I just get smarter, maybe if I get more educated, more if I, maybe if I get more intellectual. And there's nothing wrong with education and becoming more intellectual. I think every believer in Christ, I, I think the good Lord wants to teach us something every day. And uh, he's a God that uh, honors the pursuit of knowledge. But there is a difference between education and indoctrination. And a lot of what we call education today in our state-run systems and so on, public schools and so on and so forth, is often just indoctrination. And it's not education. Uh, we're for education. Uh, we're for becoming uh, more intellectual. Uh, you know, as long as we start with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, we are not uh, intimidated by true science uh, because none of it ever contradicts what God has said in his word. Uh, we're not intimidated by true philosophy uh, because there's no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Uh, so we're not intimidated uh, by true education, but it's, it's often the humanistic, uh, secularistic indoctrination that he's talking about here, I think, in his pursuit of wisdom. Remember, James 3, verses 15 through 17 says there's the wisdom that's from above, but there's also the wisdom that's from below, which is uh, earthy, earthly, sensual, devilish of the world, flesh and the devil and these wisdoms are competing and this is what he's talking about here he's talking now how he gave his heart to search out in regards to earthly wisdom I mean he learned all the heavenly wisdom younger in life when he wrote Proverbs and I said well maybe it's in secular humanistic type of intellectualism and higher criticism I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. Verse 14, and behold, all is vanity. And now we have the first time where we see this phrase, vexation of spirit. This is going to pop up ten times in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've seen vanity 
That'll come up 33 times. Vanity of vanities, three times. That means emptiness, emptiness of emptiness. Now, vexation of spirit means depression. As we have learned by studying anthropology and uh, by studying Proverbs, the spirit, the human spirit, is your emotions, your attitudes, your feelings. And vexation here means to wear down your spirit. He said, you know, I pursued this earthly wisdom looking for answers and looking for reason, and I just ended up depressed. It was depression. Now, if you'll keep your eyes open and watch those who only pursue earthly wisdom, and they reject the Bible, they reject God, they're atheistic or agnostic or secular humanistic, maybe even religiously humanistic. There's two kinds of humanists you'll find a lot of those men are depressed people. A lot of those women are depressed people. Why? Because it says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter number 3 and verse 7, they're, they're always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What a frustration to be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that is one of the prophecies of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, that he said we should keep our eyes on that are an indicator that Christ is coming soon. When there, when there is a real explosion of this type of quote-unquote education where people are ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, some kindergarten kid that knows Jesus Christ as his or her Savior knows more than these people when it comes to eternal wisdom. How sad, the vexation of spirit. He said, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. He said, you just can't change some things. Notice this, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. He said, I really tried to search out earthly wisdom, but what is wanting cannot be numbered. What does that mean? If you just list all the sciences possible, and I don't know what they are, but let's just start with angelology and anthropology and all the ologies that begin with A and all the ologies that begin with B, botany or biology and, and all the ologies that begin with C and D and E and F and G and H and so on and so forth. List all of them on a piece of paper. Every science known to man regarding every single subject. And then write down next to them the percentage of that science that you understand. I mean, of everything possible that can be learned about botany, how much do you know? You know, everything possible that can be learned, possible about chemistry, how much do you really know? Put a percentage down after that. Everything possible that you could possibly learn about um, uh, entomology, the study of bugs, etymology, the study of words, the study of languages, of everything that is possible to know about that science, how much of a percentage do you know of each one of those? Well, I would guess if you're humble enough to be honest, there's not a human being that's ever lived that could put down 1% after any science. 
So how much do we know? The best of us are totally ignorant people. I mean, how many sciences are there? It's probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sciences. How many sciences sciences are there? I, I heard the story one time about some lady that got her doctorate in, I think it was grasshoppers or something. Uh, you know, I didn't know you could get a doctorate in that. But what do you know about grasshoppers? What do I know? That's just one bug or insect. And yet her knowledge came into great help one time when she, there was a problem in the land or something, she suggested they did this with grasshoppers and she fixed the problem. Did you ever think about that? Why do we walk around in pride thinking we're something? How much do you know about music that can possibly be known? And we could go on and on and on and on and on with sciences all night and, and Write it down, put a percentage after it, how much you know. This is why the Bible says if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What, and what little we do know has been revealed to us by God, and, and people don't even want to give him the credit for that. That's what it means at the end of verse 15 when it says, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. You can't possibly put a number. 99.999, you can just write nines in probably infinitely of what man doesn't know. They say, oh, our knowledge is doubling every two years now because of the computers and everything. Yeah. And still, look how little we know. Little we know. He said, I commune with mine own heart, saying, verse 16, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now he's reflecting back to what God gave him. And I gave my heart to know wisdom. And this is now the wisdom he pursued from the world, verse 17. And to know madness and folly, I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. He said, man, I've learned wisdom every way a person can, from God. And I've learned wisdom from the world, from indoctrination. And he said, it's all madness, it's folly, it's vexation. All it did was depress me. And then he concludes... In verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now again, this conclusion, verse 18, is apart from God. Apart from God. I believe the gaining of pleasure or gaining of knowledge as you cooperate and work with God is a great pleasure. But he's saying, look, I, I pursued all this wisdom, all this intellectualism, all this knowledge without God, and all it gave me was a lot of grief, and it just increased my sorrow to think that I was getting smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter in the eyes of the world, and, and I couldn't come up with any answers. 
I couldn't be of any help. Well, in chapter 2, he says, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. So now he shifts gear and says, well, forget that. I'm just going to party and have a good time. And we'll talk about that in the next lesson. But uh, he talks in chapter 1 about labor apart from God and intellectualism apart from God. And he said, this is depressing. This is madness. This is folly. This is emptiness of emptiness. For a person to live that way, and yet, so many are like that, you know. You gotta get an education. You ever hear that? Oh, you gotta get an education. You're not gonna make it. You gotta get. You gotta go to college. You mean you're not going to college? What's the matter with you? And that's okay if it's the perfect will of God. Some of you have been through college in the perfect will of God, and, and, and because it is the will of God, it has helped you. But that's not the normal for this world. It's not the normal. I'm all for education as long as it begins with the fear of the Lord. That's where God wants it to begin. Right, let's pray. Our Father, help us, Lord. I pray nobody here would ever be.